millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. This is David Chen from Decoding Westworld. And uh, we have a special bonus episode for you today. I am speaking today with Vincenzo Natale. Vincenzo Natale is the director of cult films such as Cube and Splice. More recently, you've seen him direct episodes of television shows such as Hannibal, Wayward Pines, uh, Luke Cage, and The Strain. He's also the director of this week's episode of Westworld, Season 1, Episode 4, entitled Dissonance Theory. Vincenzo Natale, welcome to the Decoding Westworld podcast. How are you doing today, sir? I'm very well, David. How are you? I am doing well as well, sir, and uh, always great to chat with you. I'm a huge fan of your films, Vincenzo, as you know. Uh, Cube and Splice, you know, I think are brilliant and terrifying. Uh, But obviously, TV is a much more producer-driven medium than films. Uh, And so for this specific episode of Westworld, season one, episode four, entitled Dissonance Theory, like where did you feel were the places where you had the most opportunity to influence the outcome of the episode? Well, I certainly don't have any influence over the outcome. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm really just on for the ride, Um, which which is actually one of the things that's fun about doing television because in a way, it's like going back to film school because you're thrown into a situation and and it's a, I don't want to call it an exercise because I take it very, very seriously. In fact, I, I try to treat every show that I work on as if it's one of my films. But I, at the same time, the reality is you're going into uh, a template that's already been established and working with a lot of people that you didn't hire and you are a cog in someone else's machine. And uh, for somebody who's spent many years working entirely on my own, doing my own thing. Yeah, like writing your own scripts, raising your own financing, you know, that kind of thing. This is way way different, right? Yes, and and actually quite liberating. I've thoroughly enjoyed my television experience because it's it's a lot of the pleasure without the pain. And and particularly if you're existing in the independent world, as I do, um, it takes many years upwards of decades <laughs> sometimes to get a single project made. And and by the end of it, it's very hard to tell whether what you've done is of any merit whatsoever. Um, <laughs> just because you're so close to it. That, and, that is the most depressing statement about filmmaking in America or you know Canada today that I've heard in recent memory. So congratulations. Well, listen, it's, it's my own fault. Um, I chose it. So uh, I have no one to blame but myself. But, but television has been a really wonderful respite because uh, it's so fast and you're just thrown into this situation and you, even on a show like Westworld, which is, you know, quite um, well financed and with, uh, by TV standards, a very generous prep and shooting schedule, uh, it's only a matter of weeks and, and you have to become a part of this world and to the best of your ability um, represent the intentions of the showrunners. So, um, so it's a really, it, as I was saying, it's like film school. It's a really great exercise. It's a great way to 
exercise your filmmaking muscle and and then it's a kind of form of instant gratification because you start uh and within a month of beginning certainly you have your first cut of the show and then and then sometimes it's on the air a month or two later right uh, westworld took longer but it it it's i i actually have found it creatively really revitalizing and um um, and, and in some ways, you know, the other thing is because it's not, I don't feel like I take, uh, total possession over it as a filmmaker. I sometimes feel liberated from myself. <laughs> I, I think I'm, I'm, uh, you know, you're glad you don't have to suffer under Vincenzo Natale's worst impulses. This guy's a jerk. He's such a pain <laughs> to deal with. I mean, did you see and, Splice? Oh, that God. Movie's fucked he's up. A, he's a pervert. Um, so he's a pervert. That's right. Uh, so uh, Eric Bradley in the chat. We're broadcasting live on Periscope right now. Eric Bradley in the chat uh, says uh, he thought your episodes of Hannibal were among the best, uh, which I'm hard-pressed to disagree with. Uh, Amin uh, in the chat, I think, uh, earlier, I, I don't remember quite what the person's name was, but asked, is Westworld the highest budget television show you've had the chance to work on? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to think about that. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so given that you're a cog in someone's machine, like, wh- what do you feel, as a director, what do you feel you can add to the situation? You know, the script is probably mostly done. You know, maybe you can add a few tweaks to that. Like, you can add some stylistic flourishes. And obviously the, uh, the guest stars, the characters who are new in the episode, like, you're probably responsible for directing them, right? Like, does any of what I just said resonate with you? Is there stuff that you feel I didn't capture that you felt you could add to this episode of the show? Well, as a director, you are, I like to think I, I'm adding, uh, I'm additive, <laughs> although mm-hmm. I could be subtractive and, and you, and I am directing, like I am making a lot of important creative choices. Um, my path to this point was uh, very fortuitous because I, the first TV show I did was my own. And um, it was a very, very small thing called Darknet that we produced here in Canada at an absurdly low budget. Um, but it was an anthology show, and it had six episodes, and there were six different directors and writers, of which I was one. Um, but So I had the directing experience, but then I also had the, a kind of show-running experience where I was shepherding the other episodes and spending time with the other directors. And, uh, and I learned a lot from that. Um, not the least of which is the best work was, I felt done by the directors who invested the most of themselves personally in the show. And, and so that was kind of, a that's sort of what, that's what I've taken to my TV work is that every show that I work on without contradicting the intent of the show, I always try to put as, as much of myself as a filmmaker into it and and try to make it as distinctively me uh, as I can. And quite surprisingly, uh, I've consistently been met with full support from the people who are doing the shows. Like I, th- I think that that's what they want. And in this sort of shifting landscape where the line between TV and, and cinema is blurring, to a point of almost non-existence, um, they really want filmmakers and they really want their shows to be shot like movies. So, um, 
uh, yeah, so that that's that's what I try to do in each case. And in Westworld, um, Jonathan and Lisa were very supportive. And I mean, there's zero interference. They just come in and and try to support and try to encourage try to encourage me to go as far as I could with it. Um, and in specifically in in the episode I did, there was a, a new visual component to it, which was how to portray the host's point of view. And mm. the the Maeve character has a, a kind of flashback sequence, and they were very keen to put you know posit the show in a, a subjective perspective that represented what Maeve was seeing and how she would see it. And uh, and so that would be an example of of my contribution was just trying to visually. Uh, render that concept. Um, yeah, gotcha. Uh, I'd like to talk about a few more of those examples, but first we should make clear we will spoil everything through season one, episode four. So if you haven't seen it, check it out and then come back and listen to this. Uh, but the episode opens with an extreme close up of an eye and then like pulls back and you see it's Evan Rachel Wood's character, Dolores. Um, so I guess, firstly, like, how did you achieve that specific effect? And secondly, like, why did you decide to open that way? Was that your decision as an example? Uh, yes, uh, it was my decision. And I mean, I'm a sucker for eyes. <laughs> my first film cube opens with an extreme close up of an eye and mm. there's just something, I know it's a cliche, but some cliches work. And when I saw, the cut of the of Jonathan's pilot for Westworld, there was a lot of eye imagery, and and there's just this whole notion of, I mean, the eye is the window to the soul, of course, and and the whole notion of well, do the hosts have a soul or some, you know, how human are they? How how much how do we define what's human and can something be synthetic but as human as a human? I'm sure those are all ideas that were being toyed with. Um, when Jonathan and, and Lisa were first conceiving of the show. So, so that seemed an apropos way to start. And, um, and I did that technically just by, it was a, a combination of a zoom and a, a camera move to go from a very tight frame to a wider one. But that was married with uh, a very high resolution still photograph that was taken of uh, Evan Rachel Wood's eye at the same time. So that's that's how we could actually physically get the lens that close to the right. eye. It was it was marrying a, a still uh, photograph with a motion picture photograph. And interestingly, I should point out, as you may know, uh, one of the things that's unique and wonderful about Westworld is that it's shot on film, which is uh, it's shot on thirty-five millimeter film, which is completely unheard of in this day and age. Everything now is shot digitally. Um, and that was that in itself was a very exciting experience for me because I hadn't done it. I hadn't shot on film since Splice. Right, which was how many years ago? Like I don't. I please don't tell me. I don't want to know. <laughs> uh, s- several years ago, and um, <laughs> uh, and could you feel a different? Because you've shot a bunch of TV shows between Splice, uh, your film, and now. So could, so could you feel a difference? Like, did you feel like money was running through the camera when you uh, fired it up? Yeah, there's, it's an, I keep trying to decide whether it's, you know, a psychological thing or if there's like something that's a really material difference, um, in terms of the effect of shooting on film. But 
there's no question that when film is going through a camera, there's, I would say everybody on the crew is more attentive than they are necessarily when you're shooting digitally. And, uh, and if for no other reason than, you know, every 10 minutes of, of footage, you have to reload the camera, which takes time. And, and on the TV schedule, you're very, very cognizant of time. <laughs> so, um, uh, you don't do a lot of what are known as rolling resets, which means you you shoot the scene and then you go back to first positions and keep rolling, right? Uh, which is a fairly common practice these days. So, it, yeah, I just had that quality. And then there was because it was a western, um, because of the science, the scope of it, the science fiction component. There was a real romantic quality to the whole thing. I felt like I was making a big movie. Um, and it's, it's just not the same. I have to confess, it's just not the same when you're shooting digitally. There's just mm. a, and it may have to, it may have as much to do with my association with shooting on film and watching other, you know, directors I grew up with shooting on film, but it, there was something quite magical about it. Uh, there's a few questions in the chat room, uh, right now about visual effects. Like, did you have any, uh, say over, uh, like the amount of visual effects or uh, how the visual effects were used? Obviously, yeah, probably it, the latter, right? But like, were there, was there stuff that, you know, uh, that you wanted to do that you couldn't or that, or vice versa, you know, that you didn't want to do, but that they, they had to do for the episode? Uh, no, I would, I, no, I mean, there wasn't uh, any real restriction per se. Um, and uh, I mean, Jonathan likes to do things live as much as possible. So for example, when we can, we squib people, right? We yeah. don't, we don't do digital squibs. Yeah. Uh, and for, for the most part, it looks great. I, 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 I feel like I can kind of tell when it's digital squibs versus real squibs. And for the most part, it feels like real squibs. Yeah, it, it was. Sometimes they would shoot the squib component separately for various reasons. Um, but whenever I think Jonathan's, Mantra is like whenever you can do something for real, do it for real because it's always better. Yeah. And uh, so I, which is something I've always believed. Um, uh, so there isn't a lot of visual effects work in the show. There's the the terraformers, which again, um, I know the plan was to shoot models. I actually don't know in the end if uh, if they did that. I'm sure that one of the shots that I did, which was a a crane shot, was was most likely not a model because once you start to move a camera uh, and you're dealing with a model composite, like you're compositing a, a moving camera plate with a model plate that really requires motion control. Yeah. So I think I suspect one of them was a digital model, but the other one might not have been. And um, there were maybe two or three shots like that. So yeah, no, it didn't have that. I, I didn't feel those limitations at all. It was a really, um, uh, but as sorry, the question I guess is more like, well, what do you do as a director on a TV show? And yes, you're you're very on this one and other ones. You're really Im heavily involved in terms of quantity of visual effects, how they're being produced. It's um, I mean, was there a visual effect that was particularly challenging, or that you thought like was uh, you know the most ambitious thing of this particular episode? Well, there, you, to be honest, it just wasn't a lot. Like, it's not. Uh, no, it wasn't like. When there's a scene where the guy's uh, cigar explodes, yeah. and um, now that's something actually I would have just thought of doing digitally because it just, you know, sort of it just seemed too hard any other way. But in fact, we we had a real head and we blew up the head. 
Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, it was really fun. And that was married to the actor. Um, so that was actually, we actually shot that face exploding. Like that's something that left to my brothers. I probably would have just shot on a, a stage later on against green. Um, but we actually shot that on the location, like in the real environment with the light and everything. So uh, that was, un- I'll say that was an unusual thing that I I don't think you would normally see it just in this quest to make everything feel as real as possible. Like it was always an attempt to shoot things in their actual natural, natural environments and not replicate things in studio. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I want to ask you about, you know, there's a scene that happens kind of at this uh, villa or this restaurant with Anthony Hopkins, uh, character, Dr. Ford, mm-hmm. you know, talking with one of the, uh, the Delos company people. And, uh, obviously a super tense scene, super tense power lunch. And, <laughs> uh, and then there's a moment when like everyone freezes, which is like very brilliantly done, very creepy. Uh, and then shortly afterwards, you see a massive earth mover coming onto the scene, destroying everything in its wake. Uh, so wanted to ask you about, uh, what was your approach to kind of shooting and editing that scene? There's obviously many ways you could convey uh, Dr. Ford being able to freeze everyone. Like you could, you could, you don't need to show a wide shot of people in the field. Like you could just show, you know, the person in front of him or the people around him. Uh, but you know, like, what was the decision making behind showing it in that way? How did you actually achieve that? Like, did you hire uh, mimes to stand still? You know, was it digital? And then like this massive Earth mover moving in. Like, how, how was that done? Like, did you actually have an earth mover? Was that all digital? A lot of questions there. Uh, so, <laughs> so feel free to tackle them in whatever order you wish. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, in terms of – actually, one of the interesting things about the notion of everyone freezing was there was a real discussion with Anthony Hopkins on the set, who, by the way, is the most lovely human being you'll ever meet. Um, and I was terrified to meet, but uh, proved to be just a, a lovely, lovely – human being and very professional and easy to work with. Um, there was a discussion as to whether we, the audience should see what he does. Like, does he make a little hand motion or is it all invisible? And I actually recall that we did have him do a little movement with his finger to unfreeze them. And, and I believe when I saw the final version of the show, they took that out, which I thought was a good decision because it, it just made him more um, uh, like omnipotent, and yeah. and it made the whole thing more mysterious and and unsettling because you just realize how phenomenally powerful this person is. And I, that was the point of the scene, of course, was that this was a a power struggle between these two uh, individuals. And I I think that's why I was really pleased with the way the scene played out because you were not entirely sure. Uh, what the outcome will be, but you you gradually realize that Doctor Ford is, although he presents a, a smile and and a very uh, friendly exterior, is uh, not an individual to be trifled with. So um, uh, yeah, so that's uh, answered your question one. Answered your question two about the people. Yeah, um, like how'd you do just, the free? How'd you do the freezing? How'd you decide like how much freezing you wanted? That kind of stuff. They were just, they, they were actually just uh, not moving. They, and they weren't mimes or anything. They were just extras. We made a point of moving the camera, which really yeah. um, accentuated the fact that they're not moving. And uh, the people in the field are another story. That was, the field actually was a, um, 
a uh, horse riding um, track, and uh, and there were no uh, whatever those plants are, the um, tequila plants. I forget the name of the actual plant, but uh, that was all uh, painted in later on. Oh, nice! But, the, but there, but there were extras in the field, and uh, I'm sure that for the frozen moment in the field, they were that was a, a digitally frozen image. Um, and then for the terraf- what were called the terraformers, the big diggers, uh, I'm, that was what I was referring to when I was talking about the model, because um, I know the plan was to shoot that as a model, and it, it looks pretty great. I, ha- I have a feeling that it is. Like to uh, shoot the building as a model and then like actually rip it up, or, or, or like what do you mean by shooting it as a model? Uh, no, the terraformer itself is a model, and then we shot a, a, a plate uh, at the real location, and and then the model was composited onto that plate. Um, but the exciting thing about it, I believe, is that they used a real model. I don't think it was a di- like a physical model. I don't think it was a digital model. At least that was the intention at the time when I was I was shooting the show. Was it a was it a challenge to have people like stand still over the course of many takes? You know, like. Does that does the freezing element add production challenges? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. It was very straightforward, and uh, it was done very quickly. How, how many bottles of wine did you have to go through? Is my question, Vincenzo. <laughs> you mean to get through this show? <laughs> I mean, there's a scene, you know, obviously, the scene when he pours the bottle of wine and it just oh, keeps yes. pouring. Oh, oh that. Uh, <laughs> I think it was just the one. Again, we, in fact, um, the some of the this incredibly dull little detail, but some of the, the pour onto the, onto the tablecloth was added digitally because we didn't want to be resetting it a great deal. I see. Um, at least in the wider shot, as I recall, it was a year ago I shot this, but, uh, Oh wow. Yeah. That's quite a while. It was a while ago, but, uh, it was really, no, it was very straightforward. That day was a, it was a bit of mad scramble because there's other scenes that we shot there that were not used in the episode. Hmm. Um, which I probably, I don't know if I'm permitted to talk about, but it was, I know, I I'm know sure that you're permitted to talk about them, every- especially if they're from future episodes. <laughs> well, <laughs> you should tell us everything they, that happened in them. I highly doubt they would have moved elsewhere. I think they were just eliminated, but I, but I recall that all the freezing business was done super fast at the end of the day. And, and then I remember the crew as a joke, um, <laughs> all marched off the set as if they were, uh, hosts themselves. I see. And there was the last. That's right, because it was the last shot. So I, <laughs> we were shooting the, everybody. We were shooting all the um, the hosts leaving the hacienda, and then I called cut, and then the crew just put down their <laughs> equipment and walked out. <laughs> One of the most impressive things about the show overall is how you achieve a kind of human android effect. Like you, you convince the audience that these androids, uh, or, or I should say that. These actual humans playing androids are actually androids, especially in the diagnostic scenes. A lot of times they're not moving. They don't appear to be breathing at all. In your episode, there's a scene with Rebus where they're doing a diagnostic uh, with Elsie, right? And Elsie's like analyzing what went wrong with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you give some insight into how that is achieved? Like is there any digital trickery used to like make them not breathe or not move? Well, that was – that that was a, 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 a prosthetic, a a, a, um, a silicone model. So 
Uh, it's a silicon yeah. model of Rebus. You're saying? Yeah. So it was it was no, it was no problem <laughs> <laughs> dealing with breathing, but I, I think they do do some enhancement. I know that I certainly in the pilot there were things where I because I had seen the um, the cut without any visual effects where uh, a character would freeze and you know of course it's a human being so they can't freeze perfectly and that was that was yeah. clearly enhanced in post. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, let's talk about you. You mentioned you know the scene with Maeve earlier. Let's talk about you know uh, she has one of the most compelling storylines in this specific episode, uh, where she kind of discovers that she had been sending herself messages this whole time underneath the floorboards, and then like you said, there's that POV where you like see past instances when she's been dragged off and like hosed down and stuff. Uh, what were some of the, the the techniques that you used to approach editing Maeve's storyline, shooting and editing Maeve's storyline, and what effect were you trying to achieve there? Um, well, I just wanted to get inside her head, and I wanted to uh, blur the line between memory and fictionalized memory, and I I wasn't I was very interested in in making it dreamlike and not a literal recollection. Um, and uh, so I used, there's certain lenses that I use to create a, a sort of fuzzy, uh, soft, dreamy effect. And uh, we literally took the lens off of the turret and wiggled it around um, oh, against wow. the aperture. And there was, yeah, it was really fun. <laughs> it got to be, a bit experimental at points it was but again we tried very hard to do all that's in camera it's all using this thing called a lens baby and and a few other uh tricks gotcha yeah uh very cool and it's kind of like a well-known camera technique where you like take the lens put it slightly off the camera and like shake it a little bit right basically yeah you just get all kinds of natural uh analog weirdness that way uh, and also, like, a great scene at the end with, like, uh, where, where she's helping Eskaton to unlock the safe, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what was your approach to that scene? Were there any, like, uh, specific decisions that you remember about how to shoot this uh, climactic scene? Uh, well, I was nervous about that because we were – I always get stuck in small spaces and nothing is more um, – daunting because for a filmmaker because you you then have very limited choices because you know film equipment especially 35 millimeter film equipment's really big and and we were in the corner of this little office so, uh, so it was an actual space you couldn't like pull the walls away or anything like that. no no we're actually the Westworld town sweetwater is just uh, it's a i mean it's a set but it functionally is like a town i mean it's it's like a you know an old western movie set um and and so the buildings are real buildings, and you would walk inside, for instance, that bar, and go upstairs, and there's an office and all those things. And even though it's it's built to be filmed, um, it is a real structure that has two stories that you can walk on and can support the weight of a lot of people and equipment. And and the walls don't wild; they don't they don't uh, move. So so that we were really cramped. It was hot in there too. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you see Hector sweating, that's real sweat. Believe me. <laughs> uh, and and I was just 
I was, it was a long scene too. And I was really afraid in the climax of the episode. I was just really afraid that it would become a little bit underwhelming because it, you know, it was just going to be a bunch of close-ups, but that's where great actors come into play. And, um, Dandy Newton and Rodrigo who plays Hector were just so compelling and, um, and there was just such a, you know, I think chemistry between them and uh, that uh, tension and uh, it, it, it really played. And, um, but I recall, yeah, we and, shot and I thought the editing was really strong as well. Like cutting between, uh, the, you know, the, the close up of the safe and, and then cutting between each of them, like the dialogue between them, I thought was really, um, uh, escalated the tension quite a bit. I worked with a fantastic editor on it. I mean, it was really, um, it was all of her work. And, uh, but you, I, one of the things I've learned from TV, because it is a, it, you know, it tends to be a, a more performance and dialogue driven medium than film typically is, um, is that you can do a lot with just close ups and two people, uh, in a space who are not moving. I mean, just if the drama and, and the performance is there. Uh, sometimes moving them around is actually, um, it, it, it can sometimes undermine the tension of the scene. Mm. And certainly in Hannibal, you know, there's many, many scenes that we had where it's Hannibal and somebody usually will sitting across from each other uh, in a therapy session and no one is moving for the longest time. And, or often they had dinner scenes like that. And, but when you have amazing actors like Mads Mikkelsen or Hugh Dancy, there is no reason for them to move. In fact, there's just there's something there's a power in the stillness of the scenes that um, is uh, would be uh, undermined by having them stand up and walk around. And, and so this was a similar kind of thing. It was it was actually the intimacy of it, it was the fact that she was she was sort of hemmed into the corner of, of the room and he was so close to her. And there was this broiling sensuality going on and also impending violence that really, I think made it work. Um, and, uh, and then there's this whole surreal notion that she has a bullet lodged in her, but there's no wound. And, uh, and yeah. then finding the bullet was, you know, it's, it's just, it was just good writing and, and good performance. And, and I, to some degree, I'm just sort of <laughs> trying to get out of the way yeah, I have to say, if uh, Westworld, the like Delos is just leaving bullets inside the host all the time, you know, I gotta imagine that's gonna <laughs> cause problems. That's not a sustainable model for uh, for rejuvenating the the hosts. Anyway, but anyway, a lot of people are asking a question about music. Uh, firstly, this episode seems to recreate a shootout from uh, season one, episode one, right? The pilot. Right, like that same robbery, like bloody robbery sequence. Mm -hmm. So, typically, uh, if this was a movie, you would just shoot those two things at the same time, right? Like you'd shoot it twice, once for the first episode, once for the fourth episode, like back to back. So, did that happen here? And if so, like, were you even involved in reshooting the robbery scene? And the second question, a lot of people are asking in the chat room, uh, music, like, how involved were you in the uh, in choosing Carmen? Uh, Bizet's Carmen as as the score for this scene. <laughs> uh, I wish I could say I was involved with the music, but I'm not at all. <clears throat> uh, and that's really, I would say it's a frustration with working in TV, but it is a it, limitation. Yeah, it's a limitation. It, like you, 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 yeah. 
to me that I mean half the movie is made after you shoot it. Uh, I mean sometimes more than half. You can save or, or ruin a film in the edit room, and you know uh, the soundtrack and the sound design are are half the movie. So um, I take zero credit for any of that. That was all done without my participation. Um, but I what I what is interesting though is to see what is done with something that you shot. I mean, I, I deliver a cut. I always deliver a cut. Uh, and then the producers take their um, crack at it. And sometimes I guess the network does too. Um, and in, sorry, I'm, I'm diverging a little bit into another subject, but, but in this case, I remember, I recall that my cut was an hour and 20 minutes. It was really long. So I knew, I knew a lot would be removed and, you know, played with, um, which was the case, but, uh, uh, but the scene, actually I have to say the scenes that I, I th- they left a lot of what I did very much intact. Um, but, but it's, Oh, sorry. I guess what I was leading to was, it, but it's always interesting to me to see what choices are made right. by the producers in the edit room. And very often I actually like what they do. And uh, sometimes I don't sometimes usually not in this case and certainly not in the case of, of Hannibal, but, on other shows I've worked on, <laughs> generally the more flamboyant, poetic things that I like <laughs> uh, get removed. <laughs> and and it's a little more... My disappointment is usually the shows are a little more meat and potatoes in terms of how they're cut than, than I would like. Um, in the case of Westworld, I think a lot of... Most of my... If you'll pardon the use of this word, most of my poetry is left in. Uh, although certain scenes were were shortened, just I think for time reasons, but um, so that was gratifying. But it, but it is an interesting process, and it's always generally uh, it's most interesting to me when I see a decision that's made editorially that is better than what I would have done, or an improvement on what I delivered. <clears throat> I, I, that's those are the instances that I really learn. Um, and they did a lot. I, there was thought there was a lot of work done to the episode that was really good. Like there were no, there were things that I was sad that were cut out, but I think they were always for the betterment of the overall episode and probably the series as a whole. Um, anyway, but yeah, so music, uh, unfortunately I have nothing to do with. Uh, and I'm sorry, there was the first part to that question. I oh, forgot. just, uh, did you shoot that? Did you actually shoot that, uh, robbery scene? Oh yeah, so well that was an interesting thing because you know the show is is very meta, in so much as the characters are frequently talking about narrative and keeping the hosts in character and so on, and so they're basically talking like screenwriters or filmmakers. And so I had a kind of as a director, I had a kind of meta experience because the pilot had been shot, I think, a year before I shot my episode. Wow! So like <clears throat> and, two years ago. I think I could be wrong about this, but that I believe that's the case. Um, anyway, it had been completed quite some time before they actually went to series. And, and so I was walking in Jonathan's footsteps. I was retracing what he had done and I studied his scene very, very closely, um, which I thought was really well done. And, and I just, but I then realized, you know, I had to, give it this other perspective. Like we didn't want to repeat the scene. Right. And, and on top of which there are, there were new components. There were new characters that were being sutured into that sequence. 
so it was it was kind of fun actually to find ways of caressing my own little moments and my own perspective and and the specific new elements from the my episode into existing footage because there's a lot a lot of it is is Jonathan's shots. I mean, I I would just try to find. Wait, when you say when you say a lot of it is Jonathan shots, you mean like actual shots that he made a year before you were used in the scene in this episode? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, fact, and then it's like intercut with stuff that you shot that was like a recreation of that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So it was it was really fun that way, and I I was trying, obviously, I was trying very hard to make sure that everything felt seamless, seamlessly integrated, and uh, and at the same time embellish things and play with things. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there was kind of this meta element to it as well. I had to dissect how that sequence had been shot and then, and then reapproach it. People in the chat room are, uh, really impressed, uh, with how well you're able to do that. I just wanted to convey that to you. Um, but yeah, that, that is pretty, uh, incredible. But I think like, uh, one thing that's interesting is like on a movie, you know, uh, none, of, neither of the two things you said would be true. Like, probably you would have shot them back to back, right? Just from a production standpoint, and also, uh, you would the director would choose the music usually, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So the, the the showrunner of a movie is, is the director, yeah. Generally yeah. speaking, uh, unless things go horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and but you know, it's great. Like I working with. Jonathan and Lisa and working with Brian Fuller, uh, these are like, I mean, I, they are auteurs. So you're working with people who have a very strong cinematic vision and, and I learn a lot from them. They're, you know, they've been wonderful, um, just, uh, great teachers actually. Uh, I have a few like random questions, just like a few, as we wind this down, just a few little tidbits here and there curious about. Uh, firstly, Vincenzo, I'm, I'm sure you've seen that one of the biggest theories going around is that Jimmy Simpson's character, William, and his friend, Logan, are actually in a different time period than everything else that's happening on the show. So my question for you, Vincenzo, is was it difficult to shoot things in two different time periods? Well, it... That may be true. I really don't know. You see, I oh, was, you don't you don't know if that theory is true or not. Then, no, no, I'm a rat in the maze. Wow. They, okay. No, it was very. I mean, know, I was just I, joking. I didn't expect you could actually tell me, but yeah. Well, <laughs> and I, if I did know, I wouldn't tell you. But but no, no we were really. Uh, it was a there was a very strict code of silence, and um, you know, certain things were divulged to me that were relevant to what I was doing, but. Uh, there was a real attempt, you know, to to keep it all secret and and to not let the actors know certain things. And um, uh, so, yeah. So there, I, all I know is that there are twists. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> but, super. But I, I couldn't. Super I couldn't tell you honestly what they are. Super helpful. Um, <laughs> Sorry. One of the most impressive. No, it's okay. One of the most impressive things is like Evan Rachel Wood's performance throughout has been amazing. Uh, in, in my opinion, like I think she should totally get an Emmy when she's weeping at the death of her family. And then uh, Bernard says, you know, limit emotional affect. And then she's able to just shut that off. I feel yeah. like it's like she's providing a masterclass in acting right there. Did you have any approach to like how you directed those scenes that you felt like was effective in bringing that out? 
This uh, yeah. not not so much in directing her performance because she's so good uh, that there there was very little that I could contribute. Um, but I did try in that scene to be once again very much in in her perspective and to put. If you look at the scene, you'll see that the actors certainly the beginning of the scene are looking directly into the camera lens. They're looking at the audience. Yeah. So the audience is Bernard and then, um, and then the audience is Dolores. And, uh, that was, I thought that was really critical was, you know, not to do over the shoulder shots necessarily, although there might've been one or two, but essentially to be within, in a very tight, what we call tight eye line so that there's an intimacy, um, that uh, you just get from the, the camera angle itself. And um, I mean, those actors are just so good. Like, again, it, w- it was, uh, among other things, the, the, the truly wonderful part of directing a show like this is to be in the company of actors of that caliber and uh, who are also happen to be lovely and easy to work with. Like Jeffrey Wright is just so magnificent and everything he does and says is so nuanced and, um, He's just a, you know, a, such a compelling uh, force on camera, and as, of course, as Evan Rachel would. So, um, yeah. So well, that- well, speaking of actors, just this is just a random thought I had watching the episode. James Marsden is tied up to a tree, like seemingly in an incredibly uncomfortable position, <laughs> and then you have this crane shot that like comes down from up in the sky. That then, like you know, then you can see what happens. Feels like a very elaborate camera move. Uh, is it challenging to to work in like what I imagine are challenging physical environments uh, for actors who are used to being treated pretty well and then like need to be tied up to a tree with blood all over them while you do this elaborate crane <laughs> shot? Uh, not when they're nice like James Marsden. I mean, I felt badly because that was my only scene with him. <laughs> and and you're I like, like oh, I'm going to need you I, to tie it up like incredibly yeah. uncomfortably. Hi, how are you doing? Let me tie you up to this tree. In, in, you know, in, in the intense heat. Um, but he's such a nice, uh, gentlemanly uh, fellow. He did it without complaint. And yeah, and he had a vulture hanging over him, which was in danger at any moment of, like, pecking him. So, well, there's a question in the chat room about, like, were there, was there a vulture handler or something like that? <laughs> yes. The, no, the vulture was – that wasn't an accident. It, <laughs> You didn't show up. You just wait for a vulture to show up and then roll the camera. (laughs) It's good. Yeah, no, there was a vulture handler, but still, you never know anything could happen. And um, it's a big, it's a, it's a very. I'll tell you, when you see, it's a magnificent bird, um, but it's quite uh, intimidating. It's a, it's big, (laughs) and uh, it did take a long time to get that shot. Um, So uh, yes. it showed tremendous patience on Mr. Marsden's part. All right, I have two last questions. One of them is from the chat room uh, about like what what like were there any westerns that inspired your work on the show, or did you kind of just bring your normal sensibility and apply it to apply it to what the showrunners already had going? Well, my sense of the show before I got involved was uh, this is I, I don't I hope this doesn't sound reductive in any way, but was that it's it's Stanley Kubrick meets Sam Peckinpah. Mm. And um, in so much as I felt, I think those are those two filmmakers were very interested in similar themes. They were interested in uh, the violence and darkness lurking in human beings and what we're capable of, and you know, 
what moral boundaries, if any, truly exist when you get down to the very, you know, the marrow of what makes up a human being. Um, but, but Stanley Kubrick's perspective was always this, almost like a scientist, you know, it was very clinical and the perspective of his films tends to be quite omniscient. Whereas Sam Peckinpah's is always like right in the trenches with these people. And it's, it's dirty and messy and from a grunt's perspective. And I think the show does both. I think it, it flips perspectives between the two. And, um, and so, uh, that's my long-winded way of saying I stole a lot from Sam Peckinpah <laughs> <laughs> and from Stanley Kubrick. But I was, I was definitely, when it comes to Westerns, I love, uh, of course, The Wild Bunch, but also Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and um, a you know, number of uh, Peckinpah's other movies. And I just think, uh, it, I just, I felt that in the show when I read the script and it just, that some, I don't know if that was at all, an intention, but I, I felt the ghost of Sam Peckinpah. And um, so I tried to, in my small, meager, pathetic way, emulate that. Thanks so much <laughs> for joining us today on the Decoding Westworld podcast, uh, Vincenzo. It means a lot. And uh, you can find Vincenzo's episode, Dissonance Theory, available on HBO Go or HBO Now. Uh, and you can find more episodes of this podcast at decodingwestworld.com. You can also email us at decodingwestworld.gmail.com. Uh, Vincenzo, thanks so much again, and uh, hope to have you on uh, a podcast that I'm doing at some point again in the near future. Oh, always, David. Such a pleasure to hear you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 